So I was up until 4.30 a.m. LARPing. <laughs> okay, so spoiler alert to <laughs> listeners, I know about this. <laughs> and that might sound like an insane sentence until you hear some more of the details, and then you're going to be like, oh, I also want to be at that event doing the exact same thing. Here's a problem. For anyone who's listening that's not into TTRPGs, I know everyone, like a bunch of people just heard the word LARP, and mm-hmm. were like, Like, boys running around in the woods, hitting each other with swords, but arguing about, like, how you're allowed to do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Which is also fine. Like, for people who do that, like... Oh, it's fine if you're not toxic about it. What I'm trying to describe is, like, the toxic, yucky boys. The toxic nerds making fun of the other nerds for also, like, what they think LARP is. Exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. We played Good Society, which is a LARP. It's a Jane Austen-inspired LARP. That is my gosh darn dream. Are you kidding me? It was so unfair that you weren't there because you love Jane Austen and yes. I'm like, eh, okay with Jane Austen. I just love historical things clearly by doing this podcast and I, I do love a good Regency story. What can I say? It was all about maneuvering and pining and oh my God, I'm gonna trying cry. to end up married. I want to do this so badly. This is basically the D&D campaign that we're doing that's inspired by A Court of Flowers that Casey's running. It's, you know, you're in it. Yeah. Yeah. It was exactly that except LARPed in a living room over 12 hours between 4 p.m. and 4 a.m. I mean, that is a really long time, but uh, still sounds cool. Yeah. Friends of the pod, Kaylee Bray, Spencer Stark. Danny Gage. I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast love Danny. Um, just so many good people. Cat, mm-hmm. Elise. Like, top of the top. Best TTRPG players on the block <laughs> making me cry for 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. That's called living the dream. <laughs> uh, it is the dream. There was not enough caffeine this morning is all I'm saying. And thank God it's your episode. Yes, it is my episode. Um, hi, by the way, I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you would like to support the show, think about giving us a review, because it's a really great way to help new folks find the show. And we really appreciate you taking the time to spread the word about our podcast. We heard from our patrons on the Discord that I think if you have Spotify, if you click the little three dots when you're on our podcast page, you can give us a rating, Mm -hmm. which I didn't know about because I'm not a good tech user. So if you use Spotify, please consider rating us. I just have gone through and rated so many things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can also... Head over to our website and just hang out. Just listen to the episodes freeform. Just uh, check out our About Us page. Tracy took a bunch of really good pictures of the team. <laughs> there's pictures of us. Um, there's also pictures that we did for our photo shoot with Chris from An Ethereal Fire. So mm-hmm. you can check those out as well. And a huge round of applause. A big thank you to the new Fable family members, our new patrons, Mackenzie, Caffeine Spiritualist, and Tiffany A. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We say it all the time, but we do not get to podcast without our patrons, and it 
really means so much to us that we get to turn around and pay artists and chip some money to Wikipedia and create new merch for you all and make our show. Yes. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Willing and Fable family. We are so happy to have you. The other way you can support the show is by ordering your favorite beverage and giving the barista the silliest name that you can think of for your order. But no matter what, we're just happy to have you here. I am bereft because we have transitioned from fall beverages to winter beverages. Anyone who's been here for a minute knows Tracy and I are not Team Peppermint. Mm-mm. And it's just nice to have someone else with me who's not Team Peppermint. Because Peppermint is for toothpaste, gum, and those murderous little Listerine strips. Exactly. I, I'm in full agreement. Or, oh, well, candy canes, I guess. And candy canes. It's basically anything where it's toothpaste or you add a lot of just sugar and no other flavors. Although I think we can all agree that at least in terms of, like, fun, the rainbow candy canes are better. Yeah. They turn your mouth all crazy colors, which I would say is not as much fun if you're trying to just, like, be casual about enjoying a candy cane. Oh, my God. Actually, <laughs> I had an audition the other day, mm-hmm. um, like a kind of important one that was a period piece. Uh, <laughs> I love where I think this story's going. I had been... <laughs> eating lollipops <laughs> and my mouth was blue <laughs> my mouth wasn't just kind of blue my mouth was blue what did you do had a blue mouth oh my god <laughs> i got a call back <laughs> okay when you inevitably get whatever this amazing role is i need you to like tell that story on tv <laughs> I got a call back. I haven't gone yet, actually. And they gave me the note. They were like, hey, amazing work. We loved it. Uh, Can you do it again? Be a little less feminine. So are you going to do a blue mouth? Because apparently they didn't mind that. Uh, no. Don't you know? All the most femme femmes have ultra blue mouths. Got it. And since you need to be more masculine, you can't have the blue mouth. No, no. I I must have a pink mouth to be masked. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I was as, like, tough, tomboyish as I could possibly manage. Oh, man. I might have topped out at my own personal, like, masculinity level. <laughs> I'm sure we can find it somewhere in there. You can tap into it. <laughs> They said also, you know, like someone who spits. Mm. That's certainly a note to give. (laughs) I actually have a question because I was wondering about this while I was unfortunately running errands at the mall and I saw someone do the spit thing. Mm -hmm. It was a it was a man. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it like a. There's there the swallowing mechanism is broken. Is it a mark your territory? I was say, is it a dominance thing? Is it showing a general disregard for the well being and happiness of others? Yeah. Is it is it to show how cool you are? Because it seems like it's a cool thing to do. Or like, are you venomous? <laughs> See, now that that's one I'm interested in. Then I'd like to talk to you more. <laughs> Okay. All right. So speaking of venom, which is close enough to poison. (laughs) Thank you. 
<laughs> we're going to be talking today about hemlock and the hemlock society and before we jump into it i just want to say a content warning for discussions of suicide and assisted death i am very excited that you're covering this topic this is something that i've been interested in for a long time yeah so i have always been interested in plants and botany and especially uh poisonous botany and so i was excited to cover this and then it was through you that I learned about the Hemlock Society, which I'd heard of but couldn't have told you any details of. So it was really cool and really eye-opening to explore in this episode. What Tracy means to say <laughs> is she's interested in plants and botany and poison. She's given me a very cool book on it. And then I was like, death. <laughs> so, so Tracy's like science and information and cool facts about death. And I was like, death. That is so accurate, but that's what I love about our show. I'm just like, I love being a nerd, and you're like, I love being goth, and then it's like, <laughs> we have a podcast. I have a lot of really specific thoughts about the morality that kind of goes into this, so I'm really excited that you're bringing more to the table. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's dive into it. We're going to start first with what is hemlock? Hemlock, whose Latin name is Conium maculatum, is a plant that is native to Europe, Western Asia and North America, and is now naturalized in almost every single state in the United States. It was introduced in the 1800s as a garden plant marketed as being a winter fern. Nice. Mm -hmm. The plant has other names such as wombleck, beaver poison, poison parsley, bunk, heaver, ladies' lace, and devil's flower. Does that mean it's used as uh, abortive medication or like a, a birth control? Um, no, it was not mostly used as birth control. The The main plant that was actually used as birth control is called sylphium, and they've just recently found seeds of it. <gasps> uh, is that the one that got extinct because the ancient Greeks used it so much? Is that... So we're going to do a quick little tangent. So the plant's name is sylphium, and it was famously used in antiquity as a contraceptive, and it was known to be somewhat successful. So what's famous about sylphium is that the leaves are heart-shaped, what we would think of today as cartoon heart. Mm -hmm. And that got printed on like coins and other objects. And they think that potentially because it's used as a combination as sometimes an aphrodisiac, sometimes a contraceptive, that that is why we actually have the heart shape that we know of today representing love. <sighs> Was it actually an aphrodisiac or were a bunch of people like, okay, hear me out. If we market this as an aphrodisiac, we don't have to have babies about it. That's brilliant and i i don't know if that's the case but uh they found seeds of this plant and it's like one man's been like gardening it it's just I, I of course i'm saying all of this without actual research in front of me so this chunk of sentences is just from cool things i've seen online but feel <laughs> free to write in and let us know if you have more information because i think it is just the most exciting thing in like archaeology meets history meets science right the last paragraph of information please don't at us if you would like us to research it more we will yes <laughs> <laughs> but for now, we're talking about hemlock, and poison hemlock famously looks similar to wild carrot, wild parsnip, and water hemlock. They all have similarities, um, but I will talk in a little bit about the ways that you can specifically identify hemlock so that you don't just go grabbing it, because it grows everywhere, Rowan, even on the sides of roads. I feel like I've seen this plant. I feel like I've run through this plant. So why don't you give a description of uh, – this is a, a 19th century illustration of hemlock because you know how much I love antique botany illustrations. You do. You have good taste. Um, here's the problem. <laughs> I grew up in the woods, but I don't know jackal. 
about <laughs> what how to describe plants. So here we go. A uh, tiny little stem splits off in oodles of different directions. We've got leaves that do actually look like fern leaves, but kind of little clusteries. Mm-hmm. Not we're not we're not waving. We're not drooping. We're just little. Uh, and then the tops, the flowers are doing that thing where all the flowers grow up in little fingers and then kind of flatten on the top where all the little whitish yeah. flowers yep, are. They're white. Uh, little clusters of white flowers, just exactly you said, kind of puffing up like that. You can't see it on this drawing specifically, but the way to identify hemlock um, is that the stem is going to have reddish or purplish modeling on it, and it will not be hairy, unlike some of its similar counterparts, which will have hairy stems. Ooh. So that's a way you can tell the difference of it. And then like you, you pointed out, the triangle-shaped leaves that also fan out. So a taste test isn't on the table? No, but if you crush the leaves, uh, it'll have a musky odor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that I threw out a joke and you had the fact. <laughs> I didn't even acknowledge that it was a joke of like, oh, so if you taste it, you die. I'm like, don't worry about tasting it because you can just crush the leaf. <laughs> You're so cool. You're so nice for saying that when I just <laughs> like bobbed and weaved out of that joke. <laughs> It's okay. I'll keep doing it. Okay. Thank you. All right. So what makes hemlock so poisonous? Well, University College London writes that, quote, eight piperidine alkaloids have been identified in hemlock. The alkaloids are a group of mildly alkaline compounds, usually of botanical origin, that can produce strong physiological effects. Of the eight alkaloids identified in hemlock, two are in highest concentrations and account for the toxicity of the plant. These two compounds are g coenacine and conine with conine being about eight times more toxic than coenacine all of that means that because this plant is so toxic that ingesting more than 150 to 300 milligrams of conine which is approximately six to eight hemlock leaves can be fatal in adult humans that's it just six to eight leaves completely fatal and the roots and seeds are also toxic potentially even more so than the leaves I can't believe this is just occurring to me now, but this episode in combination with the Aquatofauna episode is building up a lot of evidence that is going to be used against you in court. <laughs> it's unfortunate that I find this so interesting. I, I I don't know. There's just something interesting to me about botany and the history of poisons and plants and how they interact with people and how they can be used. It's the same way I'm also a nerd about geology. Like, rocks. I think you can you can bring this all to court and be like, Your Honor, she's a nerd. And then we're like, guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that that was as funny as I'm just imagining. <laughs> okay, you know how mm-hmm, sometimes the gavels, instead of being like a hammer, are like a circle, like you smack? They hold it like a paperweight almost. Have you ever seen that? No, but please go on. I'm just imagining a big D20. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, when you started laughing, I thought you were imagining like a clown just like. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. <laughs> I love clown court. <laughs> Unhinged. Unhinged. Okay, let's talk about poison. So. Let's talk about how to identify hemlock poisoning. 
Hemlock poisoning can be identified by muscular paralysis leading to paralysis of the respiratory muscles, eventually causing death from oxygen deprivation. Mm -mm. Narcotic-like effects can be observed as soon as 30 minutes after ingestion, with victims falling asleep and unconsciousness and gradually deepening until death a few hours later. Death can be prevented by artificial ventilation until the effects have worn off about 48 to 72 hours after exposure. That's not so bad. No, today we have a way to deal with it. Through much of history, they did not. And for much of history, hemlock was used as medicine. Is this like a mercury situation? Not quite to the degree that they thought mercury could fix everything. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was something like, we can use this to heal you. Because a lot of times throughout history, they thought that a visible effect meant you were healing. So something that would make you throw up or something that would you know give you stomach cramps. Like that was clearly working and it would it was clearly helping you. You could see the effects of it. So they used a lot of toxic things. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So, Yan Liu wrote an amazing article for Carnegie Mellon titled, quote, Poison in the Pre-Modern World. In this article, they say that the English word pharmacology or pharmacy derives from the Greek word pharmakon, which means both remedy and poison, among other things. Pharmakon appeared in some of the earliest medical and botanical works in Europe, end quote. I just love a little etymology fact. It reminds me of in Circe, her magic's called pharmakeia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it both, like, helps and hurts. Good. <laughs> the Hippocratic Corpus, which dates to around the 5th to 4th century BCE, prescribes a number of narcotic drugs such as mandrake, opium, poppy, nightshade, henbane, and hellbore. The last <laughs> one, hellbore, appears most frequently serving as a purgative to treat gynecological disorders, humoral imbalance, and lung problems. Well, you don't want to eat all of those things? Even I know that that's a bad list. Mmm, <laughs> delicious. <laughs> Snackies. Mm-hmm. Imagine the salad. Yes, I have. While researching this, how interesting would that be? I bet it'd be colorful. I know. I honestly bet it would be pretty interesting, at least for the first few bites. Put a little poppy seed dressing on that. Done. Yeah. I guess you can't have it dry. Oh, we gotta jazz it up. Yeah. Little lemon, little olive oil. Night, night. It would be effective. All right, so it is also noted that Hippocratic writers describe the harmful, even lethal effects of hellbore if administered carelessly. The conclusion of this section of the paper states that for much of history, there was no simple division between poisonous and healing substances. It was simply thought about in doses. Yanlin goes on to write that, quote, No example better illustrates the divergence of Greek and Chinese pharmacy than the distinct fates of aconite. In Demeteria medica, this powerful herb called wolfsbane is cited only as a poison to kill wolves, without any curative value. In no less than 17 places did Dioscorides offer treatment for aconite poisoning, indicating its great danger. But in China, aconite, called futsi, was valued for its therapeutic power to the degree that it was hailed as the, quote, Lord of the Hundred Medicines. This is not a hyperbole, as the herb was one of the most frequently prescribed drugs in pre-modern China. The striking divergence is likely derived from the distinct therapeutic rationales in European and Chinese pharmacy. If Dioscorides considered poisons to be the cause of unpleasant side effects, Chinese physicians deemed them to be the very source of curative capacity— in other words, European medicine prescribed poisons in spite of their power, Chinese medicine, because of it. 
End quote. I know I would not have survived for very long at all mm-hmm. before penicillin. Absolutely same. Which, that's 1928, y'all. Mm-hmm. So, no Great Gatsby for you if you want penicillin. <laughs> yeah, you're at the end of the Roaring Twenties if you really are are aiming for it. That's what the Roaring was from. A lack of antibiotics. Yeah. <laughs> I just really loved this paper because not only does it beautifully describe the way that we as humans have tried to use poison as therapeutic treatments throughout history, but it does so by contrasting two different cultures and the way that they approached it. There is no one way that poisons or medicines were used in history, and we're so, we so often hear about it from the Western ideas of medicine without understanding other cultures' use of the same ingredients for treatment. So I got really excited that this really focused on Western versus Chinese medicine throughout history and talked about the way we use poisons. It's especially interesting because in recent years, I've been very lucky to be exposed to a lot of Chinese medicine that I've found like personally very helpful. Acupuncture mm-hmm. has, to be somewhat euphemistic, saved my butt a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> but just the divergence of the schools of medicine, and certainly there are more, but I'm just so thankful to be past the poison phase and grateful for all the people who put the work in to get through that. Yeah. So even today, we're still looking at poisons and thinking about how we can use them to our advantage. Like chemo? Chemo is an example. Um, Some medicines that we still use today um, include opium poppy, which is used for pain relief, foxglove, which is used to treat irregular heartbeats, sweet wormwood, which uh, fuels a widely used malaria treatment. Scientists are also looking at poisonous and venomous fungi and animal species for potentially life-saving new drugs. The development of the first oral ACE inhibitor, which treats hypertension, was based on an understanding of how the venom of the Brazilian pit viper causes a drastic drop in blood pressure in its prey. That's awesome. Isn't that so cool? That is so punk rock. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, Botox is botulinum toxin, right? Exactly, yes. Which is so much money is in that little corner of the industry. Mm-hmm. So we're still looking at poisons and using them as medicine. We're just, you know, fingers crossed, a little better at it. And the other thing we're also good at is distilling from the chemical that we need specifically from the plant. So obviously we're not going to be injecting people with Brazilian pit viper, but we're going to take what chemical compound does the action and turn that into the ACE inhibitor. That's so cool, but I'm still going to imagine the pit viper. I know. As you should. <laughs> it's a very cool thing to imagine. So let's dive into hemlock specifically as medicine and how it was used in a few different ways. So according to University College London's article titled Medicina Antiqua, quote, As a medicine, hemlock has sedative and antispasmatic properties, but was used by Greek and Arab physicians for a variety of maladies, including joint pain, end quote. Obviously, it was used with extreme caution since they knew even then that small amounts could cause devastating effects to the patient. This has made its use in medicine rather spotty since the amount needed to migrate from therapeutic to toxic is a really small dose and it was easily missed a lot. So it wasn't the preferred poison of choice. 
Mark Siddle, curator of the special exhibition The Power of Poison at the American Museum of Natural History, which unfortunately is no longer going on. I checked. It's no longer a current exhibition. Mm. (laughs) But they had some cool information that was still available, even though the exhibition's not there. They ask, what is a poison? And they say that it is a substance that interferes with normal physiological processes that alters or stops them or makes things happen. That is essentially what medicines are, too. End quote. I was just going to say, you mean everything? Exactly. That's the whole idea. It's the idea that poison is in the dosage. Right. Poison, I mean, as a layman, I'm just like, poison is all that plus a bummer. Like, medicine is all that plus a benefit. It as a human who just wanders around the world right if you're just eating things off the ground it's i would agree with that but i would say i don't know i i think a lot of things to do with poison and medicine are in the dose and you know if you have the right reason to use something it's no longer a poison it's doing what you need it to do well 100 percent. look at the inverse an overdose that is taking a beneficial medicine in the wrong dose Mm -hmm. oh this is good i know okay so (laughs) i found an article in the national library of medicine that goes into something called dual This is an anesthesia from the Middle Ages, hundreds of years before we even thought anything like that was invented. Wait, sorry. 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 Mm -hmm. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, we have, we have manuscripts, Rowan. We have manuscripts talking about this medicine that was, again, hundreds of years before we thought they knew how to use anesthesia. This was something that was used, but then it fell out of fashion. And the theory is because of a few reasons we'll get into, but one of them being that it's, it is, uh, spicy um in the ingredients that it uses and too much it's not an anesthesia anymore but but we found it this is so cool you're so cool (laughs) yeah i mean you're so cool because you're excited about this and you're letting me geek out this was so much fun for me okay according to manuscripts from between the 12th and the 15th centuries hemlock was just one of many ingredients used to make this anesthesia there were said to be two kinds of ingredients in duale or duale I couldn't find a pronunciation guide. But there were those ingredients which were harmless and ineffectual, such as bile, lettuce, vinegar, and bryony root, and others that were powerful and dangerous, such as hemlock, opium, and henbane. Mm. If wolfsbane was actually used specifically to kill wolves, is henbane just a bad day for chickens? It might be. I would need to (laughs) do more research on it. In spite of its dangers, Dual was known widely and would have been administered by ordinary housewives. In addition to alcohol, the ingredients in Diwali are, in order of their listing, bile, hemlock, bryony, lettuce, opium, henbane, and vinegar. Anesthetist Anthony J. Carter writes that, quote, however, Dual might not have been quite as dangerous as first sight would appear. Medicinal herbs grown in northern countries are less potent than those grown in sunnier regions. Oh! hmm As their potency is greatest when herbs are freshly collected, much would have been lost in the boiling and storage that the recipe calls for. Uh, okay, uh, this shows how little I know about plants. I, I had always thought that things that grew in the cold or harsh environments had more zhuzh because they had to work so much harder to get what they got. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, But I think if you think about it from the perspective of you get more energy from being in the sunlight and you're able to produce more. And 
So you're able to put your energy into many more things, including the production of more of the stuff to protect you, as mm -hmm. opposed to when you don't have the energy to even do that. It's not like it's, you always make the same amount. It's just concentrated because the plant is smaller. Tracy, stop shouting at me. <laughs> That's my guess. I'm also not a plant person. I have a degree in technology. No, I just mean like you have energy, you get more. <laughs> Listen, I'm just saying what nature tells me. I'm not saying what I experience every day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So during medieval times, lower class people often turned to monasteries or almshouses for medicinal help. The better off and often more literate middle classes receive treatment from their own homes. And what's interesting is that dual recipes are found not in medicinal or religious texts that would be at almshouses and monasteries, but rather in domestic remedy books, suggesting that it was medieval housewives who created and administered this medicine, not the monks or surgeons. Cool. <laughs> I think that's so interesting. This was specifically designed for women to give to people at home, not for something that was held privately for use in the monasteries or the almshouses. This is why when grandmothers die with their recipes in their head, it's a dark day. Mm -hmm. I was talking about this with a bunch of friends. Like, if you have a family recipe, that's that's valuable stuff. Yes. Agreed. Be the grandkid in the kitchen because grandma only gives the good information about how much butter actually goes into the cookies to that grandkid. Mm-hmm. Be the one who gets the poison recipe, my friends. Yeah, or sit with your grandparents and whoever has the recipes and, like, sit and ask them stories and write it down. You're never going to know how much hemlock to put in the salad if you don't hang out with grandma. She's got all the knowledge, people. <laughs> all right, so Carter, who I quoted earlier, states at the end of the article that much medicinal advance in the 20th century has come not from new drugs, but rather from our ability to measure and administer old ones accurately. At the dawning of a new millennium, they serve to remind us once again of the enormous debt we owe to the past. So now moving on to the next probably most famous thing you think of when you think of Hemlock, the death of Socrates. Mm -hmm. At Phaedo 117e Plato describes the death of Socrates in terms consistent with the action of hemlock. The quote goes, Socrates walked about and presently, saying that his legs were heavy, lay down on his back. That was what the man recommended. The man, he was the same one who had administered the poison, kept his hand upon Socrates and after a little while examined his feet and his legs then pinched his foot hard and asked if he felt it. Socrates said no. Then he did the same to his legs, and moving gradually upward in this way, let seem that he was getting cold and numb. Presently he felt him again and said that when it reached the heart, Socrates would be gone. That was Plato's description of the death of Socrates. Very famous and lots of artwork has been created around that concept. Do we think it was actually Hemlock? Do we know? Do we have the answer? There's debate. So according to an article titled, What Killed Socrates? Toxological Considerations and Questions. This <laughs> description of Socrates' death does not completely line up with that of hemlock poisoning. Author A.D. Dayan writes that Socrates is said to have had a prominent loss of sensation extending centrally from his legs, which is not a feature of hemlock poisoning, and he seems not to have had the unpleasant taste or common gastrointestinal effects of the poison. 
Dayan is suggesting instead that Plato gave a modified account of the death of Socrates for political and other reasons by describing a more, quote, noble death. So it's still believed he did die from hemlock poisoning. It's likely that Plato made the death sound a little prettier than it really was. If you scroll down a little bit, I have a picture, the most famous painting of the death of Socrates. Dying by poisoning usually involves a lot of bodily fluids, if I'm correct. Yeah, it's – I don't think I can think of a time when it is pretty. Yeah, there's no wilting onto the chaise longue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Okay. He's sitting up, pointing at the sky, like holding It's him about to take the the goblet of (laughs) of hemlock and drink it. Okay, I was thinking – he was filled with vim while dying of poison. That's fair. That based on the way that I, I pitched it to you, I can understand that. <laughs> okay, so th- th- this has a lot of the style and choices that folks will recognize from how we described, you know, the death of Patroclus and the mourning mm-hmm. of Achilles. And uh, if you're familiar with a lot of Christian religious artwork, a lot of togas, yes. a lot of men having big feelings. Yes. Um, Socrates is sitting on what looks like a bed that is classic wooden with a mattress that was likely stuffed, not particularly luxurious. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a stone room, there's an arch. Someone is handing him a cup of poison, but like covering their eyes and looking away Mm -hmm. there's a man at the end of the bed just hanging his head sitting in a chair the there's a man looking up at socrates who's sitting on the bed he's got his hand on his knee like oh my poor gentleman there's a a group of men behind the bed behind socrates that are just like some have their hands to the sky some are huddling and holding each other it's like a passion play. I don't know if anyone's familiar. I lived far enough from a church that this shouldn't have been a thing, but every time they would put on their passion play, we could hear the like, oh, Lazarus, <laughs> through echoing through the woods, um, like that level. There's someone in the background underneath an arch just throwing himself against the wall, yeah. crying. He's my favorite boy. Yeah, when we post this on the Instagram, you can feel free to tag tag yourself. Tag in this yourself. Image. <laughs> I want to be, I want to be the person who's handing him the poison, but like can't, just can't look. I believe it might be Plato who has his hand on his knee. Like I'll take that one. That seems like a fun spot to be in in the painting. My good man, let me hold you while you die. Famously, Socrates is in the center of the painting with his finger up. Uh, as though continuing to give the lectures for which he was executed. It's that gesture of hand up, pointing, pointer finger up at the ceiling, but your hand, your palm is toward you, mm-hmm. which is a very different point than if your palm is away at the audience. Yes. It's aggressive. It, yeah, it's when you think of it as someone emphatically speaking. So Emily Wilson writes for the Wall Street Journal that, quote, the trial of Socrates is the first case in recorded history when a democratic government by due process of law condemned a person to death for his beliefs. Athens, 
one of the world's earliest democracies, raised Socrates, educated him, and finally sentenced him to death, having found him guilty of religious unorthodoxy and corruption of the young. (laughs) The trial and its outcome represent a political problem with which all subsequent democratic societies have struggled. How to deal with dissent. Socrates is seen as a victim of intolerance and oppression, a hero who struggled and died for civil liberties. End quote. Thousands of years later, and he's still seen as a symbol for fighting against injustice. What do you think his other options for death were? We'll actually touch on that. No. In, in my story, maybe. Ugh, you always know what I want <laughs> to learn. It might have been something I also thought about. <laughs> <laughs> So here's where we're going to fast forward to more or less modern day society and talk about the Hemlock Society. According to Human Life International, British journalist Derek Humphrey had a bit of a problem on his hands in early 1975. His wife, Jean, was suffering from incurable bone cancer and he could not bear to see her in such pain. So after much discussion between them, he handed her a cup of coffee loaded with barbiturates and painkillers. She drank this concoction and died within minutes. Derek Humphrey would go on to found the Hemlock Society, sometimes called Hemlock Society USA, and this was an American right to die and assisted suicide advocacy organization, which existed from 1980 to 2003. It was co-founded in Santa Monica, California by Derek Humphrey and his second wife, Anne Wicket Humphrey, and a professor named Gerald A. LaRue. Rowan, it was you who exposed me to the Hemlock Society and what their mission was. Yeah, I have been around a lot of medical things in my life, and there is this interesting kind of void in medical care and how we deal with giving people, I don't want to say a good death because we've been talking so much about like the Victorian area and what that means, mm-hmm. but how we limit the amount of pain people experience in death. And there is a space between someone who is having a mental health crisis, who is not receiving mental health care, who is unwell in that way, grappling with their own life. And then someone who is mentally well, but physically very unwell, uh, and not wanting to live out through suffering and have the end of their life be exceedingly painful. Mm -hmm. And personally, I believe that those people have a right to decide what happens in their life. Um, and again, it's difficult because in America, we are not good at mental health care. No, we're not. It is not available to a lot of people. When it is, it is not up to snuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being in a hospital, being physically unwell does take an incredible toll on your mental health. Uh, Your mental health can influence your physical health. There's a lot of nuance in there. But people who are terminally ill – have to come to terms with the end of their life in a way that is fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. And the Hemlock Society really advocated for allowing those people to 
have some dignity. That is, we'll we'll get into it, but their big thing is death with dignity. Um, So the original Hemlock Society board was headed by Professor Gerald LaRue, who was described by the Hemlock Society as, quote, a well-known specialist in social problems of the elderly, end quote. Another member was attorney Richard Scott, who in 1983 was on the ACLU team in the Bovia case, asking and ultimately receiving the right to refuse food and hydration. The Mm -hmm. Hemlock Society's primary mission included providing information to the dying and supporting legislation permitting physician-assisted suicide. Its motto was, good life, good death. No longer eating or drinking is a very difficult way to die. Yes. It is painful. Of course it is. I mean, it's depriving your body of the most vital things over a long period of time. It's sad to me that in medical care, that is some people's only way. I know. And we don't we don't have time to talk about it on this podcast. But because the whole idea is, do you know, first do no harm for the Hippocratic Oath. There's a lot of laws around being unable to end a person's life. And I'm not very specifically informed on this, but if I'm correct, there are only certain states or there used to be only certain states where you could die by physician-assisted suicide. And so people who are terminally ill would have to move with their entire family to these Mm -hmm. places so that they could have their final wishes, which is just brutal. Mm Mm-hmm. So I pulled the manifesto from the Hemlock Society website, and it says, Liberty and Death, a manifesto concerning an individual's right to choose to die, by Derek Humphrey, founder of the Hemlock Society. In a spirit of compassion for all, this manifesto proclaims that every competent adult has the incontestable right to humankind's ultimate civil and personal liberty, the right to die in a manner and at a time of their own choosing. Suicide no longer being a crime, it is unacceptable to prosecute well-meaning people for assisting a suicide. Medically hastened death by request should be made lawful as it is now in the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and the American states of California, Colorado, District of Columbia, Hawaii, New Jersey, Oregon, Vermont, Washington, and Montana. Each has different rules. Views on the dying process contrary to those expressed in this manifesto are respected, but must not trump the autonomy of the dying person's own decisions. End quote. While versions of the Hemlock Society still exist across America today, they often go by other names now, with only a few holding on to the original title of the Hemlock Society. It's always about bodily autonomy, isn't it? It does come down to people not wanting their bodies controlled by other people or the government. <sighs> so... In doing my research on the Hemlock Society, I came across a lot of information about the founders, specifically Anne Humphrey and the kind of notorious incidents around her death. And so I wanted to dive into exploring the life of the founders and and Anne Humphrey's death specifically, because to our listeners who are around in the time this is happening, they might have heard about it and been wondering why we're not addressing this big event. Mm. So I'm not bringing this up to discourage any of the work at the Hemlock Society or the... um, benefits they might bring by educating people, but I do think it's important to understand the lives of the people who created the society itself. Mm. So there's a bit of a dark and complicated history. According to Human Life International, quote, Anne Wickett Humphrey was diagnosed with breast cancer in September of 1989. 
Derek Humphrey, the leader of the Compassionate Hemlock Society, responded to the situation by labeling her a mental incompetent and then dumping her. Ah! Yeah. Robert W. Stone, Anne's son, defended her and revealed some of the inner machinations of the Hemlock Society when he wrote, quote, Having to respond to Derek Humphrey's claims of my mother's mental illness is both humiliating and insulting. Anyone who knew Anne Wickett realizes how courageous and sensible she was and how preposterous such claims are. And no one better than Humphrey himself. Death for Humphrey's Hemlock Society is strictly business, and to him his wife simply became bad business to be discarded. What he did to my mother disgusts me. To top it off, he had no qualms about printing a eulogy in the New York Times, then later openly admitting its purpose was damage control. End quote. Ugh. Yeah. He, he's not going to come out of this looking squeaky clean. No, of course not. That's labeling people mentally incompetent has been the tool of people throughout history to control folks' bodily autonomy. <laughs> yes, it is a pattern we have seen, and there's something a little bit shocking about it being from 1989 that this happened, and somewhat successfully to the point where Anne publicly charged Derek with gross hypocrisy. Where was the caring, nurturing attitude so prevalent in Hemlock Society literature, she asked. Anne said, quote, I'm an embarrassment to them. I was dumb enough to get cancer, end quote. It's so interesting because she, her life was not in conflict with their goals. Getting breast cancer is not in conflict with that. I think what it comes down to, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about this more, is that her husband, Derek Humphrey, I think may have freaked out over the idea of another sick wife and another wife that he would have to put this into practice with. And then he was the Hemlock Society. He was this central figure. And so for him to falter means for the society to falter. Ah. That's my interpretation of the situation based on what I found. And herself wrote a short suicide letter to her husband before dying. The letter was scathing and accused him of multiple crimes. She also sent a letter to Rita Marker, accusing her husband of suffocating his first wife instead of poisoning her per his request as he claimed. Rita Marker was an anti-euthanasia activist who became friends with Anne two years before her death, and Rita recognized the convenience of the letter that Anne sent to her, but denied any part in writing it. So, Anne accused Derek of murdering his first wife and then founding the Hemlock Society, not helping her in a barbiturate-induced assisted suicide. That's terrifying. Yes. I found multiple articles from the time period discussing Anne's death and its impact on the Hemlock Society. But the first one is actually from about a year prior to Anne's death, from the New York Times, who wrote an article about the divorce between Anne and Derek, which happened after he found out about her cancer diagnosis. This quote says, The couple offer differing versions of what happened. Mrs. Humphrey, now 47 years old, says her husband panicked at the thought of having another wife die. Quote, the long and short of it is simple. Derek Humphrey, unable to cope with the fact that his wife of 13 years was struck with a life-threatening illness, simply walked out, end quote. She wrote to the board members. She had surgery on September 22nd. He left her on October 13th, four days after she began chemotherapy. She has said she's been told she has a 75% chance of recovering from cancer. Oh. She also said she, quote, distanced herself from her husband in recent years. I was tired of the world of the death and the dying, she said. 
The 59-year-old Mr. Humphrey said his departure was the culmination of years of marital troubles. He said the marriage had been vacated for years and that her handling of her cancer was the straw that broke the camel's back. Among other things, he said she was prone to rapid mood swings, harbored unrelenting antagonism to his family, and demanded that he cry for her the way he did for his first wife. He also said he had not retreated from the philosophy of the Hemlock Society. End quote from the New York Times. So that's all a year before Anne even passes away. Ugh. It's not painting a great picture. No, and actually... To quote a Reuters article uh, called Men Are More Likely Than Women to Leave Partner with Cancer, quote, women are six times more likely to end up separated or divorced if they are diagnosed with cancer or multiple sclerosis than if their male partners were facing the same illness, according to a U.S. study. The study confirmed earlier research of a divorce or separation rate among cancer patients of 11.6%, similar to the general population, but found the rate jumped to 20.8% when the woman was sick versus 2.9% when the man was ill. End quote. Mm -hmm. Thank you for looking that up so if everyone knows Roman just pulled that up to share with everyone. Because I knew that that stat existed. I just mm -hmm. didn't know what the numbers were. It's We've talked about it. I've talked about it with other folks, but... It is more common for a man to leave a woman who is diagnosed with illness than vice mm -hmm. versa. I'm not surprised by that at all. At all. And I, and I think that that comes into play a bit here. Mm -hmm. <sighs> so a, a year later, the Wall Street Journal wrote in October of 1991 regarding Anne's death, Humphrey, 60, was in England today and would not comment on the letter. He is executive director of the Hemlock Society, which is based in Eugene, and advocates the right of the terminally ill to choose when to die. We were very saddened by her decision to end her life, Cheryl K. Smith, Deputy Director of the Hemlock Society, said of Anne Wickett Humphrey. However, Anne Wickett was under a great deal of stress for whatever reason, and any statement or writings from her should be viewed in light of her mental condition. It it really gets me here that it's so, as I mentioned, Cheryl K. Smith was deputy director of the Hemlock Society and went along with what Derek Humphrey said, which was basically anything that Anne wrote before she died should be disregarded because of her, quote, mental condition, which is so infuriating. And again, in the 1990s, we're saying a woman is just, she's just hysterical and gone mad. Well, that's because there's money involved. If anyone wants to read a short story that it is very much about this kind of idea of claiming that a woman is mentally unwell to take advantage of her or control her, I guess is a better phrase. The Yellow Wallpaper oh. by Charlotte Perkins Gilman is... Yes. It's fascinating. Harrowing. It was something we read in high school and it just stuck with me ever since. Oh, I own a copy of it now. And Galatea, which is Madeline Miller's new short story. I just bought it literally today in hard Have copy. you read it? No, I bought it like I bought it and then got home and now we're recording, but I went to my favorite nearby bookstore and got a hard copy of it because um, it's this like really cute local, it's the really cute local bookstore and they had it on front and center display. So I have it and I'm thrilled. And it's one of those things you can read in like, I think 20 minutes. Oh, exactly. And I have no idea of knowing because I don't know Madeline Miller, but Having read it, it felt very influenced by the yellow mm. wallpaper to me. Mm, I don't like this. I know. The last article 
is from the AP Press, who wrote, Anne filed a $6 million lawsuit against Derek and the Hemlock Society last year, alleging libel and slander for his comments he made about her mental state. She contended that he was trying to induce her to commit suicide. <sighs> Police seized Humphrey's copy of the suicide note in which Wicket said Humphrey must live with his, quote, desertion and abandonment and subsequent harassment of a dying woman, end quote. Benton County Sheriff's Detective Sergeant John Chilcote said police hadn't seen Marker's copy and could not comment on its authenticity. So remember, Rita Marker got a copy of the same letter that Derek got, and she was an mm -hmm. anti-euthanasia activist that became friends with Anne in her later years and had to come out and say, I understand it is very convenient that Anne sent me this, but it is real and I didn't tamper with it. <sighs> Friendly reminder to everyone. Get your will in order before you need to. Which in this scenario isn't exactly a one-to-one. -one. It's mm -hmm. just important. We, we've said it multiple times on the podcast, especially in the last few episodes. But please, if there's something that you want in your will, put it now. And if there's a way that you want your body handled after you pass away, get it in writing as well. Sign and date everything. The thing that sticks with me here is actually imagine having cancer, whether you're terminal or not, mm -hmm. and having to deal with all of this. Imagine dealing with it healthy, but then imagine dealing with it when you feel unwell. Mm -hmm. it's Even awful. just with a headache, it sounds daunting. And that's not enough of a word. Yes. <sighs> I And I, I know, like I said before, that I don't want to discredit that the Hemlock Society does work educating people, but it feels unfair not to give everyone the background information about the character of the man who was the figurehead of it for so long. Well, it's an important piece of history. We always exactly. talk about all the bits of history that we can. Good, the bad, and the ugly. The thing, and this is not just the case with death, it just feels poignant when we're talking about death, especially people who are dying, I mean, mm -hmm. actively in the process of dying is very different than accidentally by surprise. It, things are different when you have bad actors in the mix, right? Because if, yes. if you are terminal and your life is painful and you have decided you want to die and everyone around you is thoughtful and cares about your wishes and is operating to the best of their abilities and there is knowledge and money and friends and family and all those good and important things. It is a very different situation than if you are on your own, mm -hmm. if you are not wealthy, if people around you are not trustworthy. It Every little detail becomes a part of the picture and it is very appealing to try to make grand sweeping moral decisions about death based on the lowest common denominator which is but what about when this is terrible mm -hmm. when all of those bad things are in place when you don't have any of the good but unfortunately, there are 7 billion people on this planet. And grand sweeping uh, speeches are rarely applicable. 
You have said it better than I possibly could. And I, I agree with everything you said. The only thing I want to add before we get people writing in is, yes, we know there's officially 8 billion people on the earth. That was a milestone recently reached. Sorry, y'all. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was close I, enough that I knew we'd get at least one email. You know, I got used to saying seven and then a billion other people popped up. <laughs> but I thank you for saying all of that because I agree and it's such a nuanced conversation that as we say so many times in the show, we can't just say one thing is perfect for everyone. It has to reflect the individual and we need to enable those conversations to happen at every level, both interpersonal all the way through governmental. One thing that I've learned in my own life grappling with a lot of medical health with a lot of people and myself um, and mortality is that the more you talk about it, and not in these grand, important conversations, but just in little ways, the more manageable it is, mm -hmm. and the more that it can be integrated into life in a way that is healthy. Absolutely. It's a, it's classic quote-unquote exposure therapy. If it's something you're really afraid of, the more that you encounter it in small ways and then you realize through those encounters that things were okay, the more okay it is the next time and the next time and the next time and the next time, even if it doesn't always feel like it isn't scary, eventually that fear subsides because you have less evidence to rely on to be afraid of. And death can feel like such a betrayal. Mm -hmm. And that's not really how it works no. that's not what death is all of the time <laughs> again right. it's that sweeping gesture that sweeping speech things can feel so different in from one day to the next and uh, suffering is just so brutal and america really likes to moralize about how people try to alleviate suffering. Mm -hmm. Prohibition is a really good symbol of that. We don't really like for people to seek medicine, poison. We like to judge the way people mourn. We think there's a right way and a wrong way, and we moralize about it. But we also like to judge the way that people try to feel better. And I don't even mean in the case of death. I just mean like, Alcohol, drugs, we love to pick what is good and what is bad. We love to say that it is inherently bad to want to alleviate suffering in a chemical way. I think that depends. I think, I don't know that I totally agree with that statement. I think there mm. are ways that we do moralize about it, but I think it comes down to the way it is presented. Um, I think if someone is having a hard time and they have a few drinks and discuss it with someone, that's in every book you've ever read. It's in every TV show you've ever seen. But when we decide, you know, when someone harms themselves trying to feel better, we get a different reaction out of it. And that's where what I believe we should do is recognize that that person is in pain or might have a like medical issue or something that we need to 
help them through. Instead, we say that person failed or that person isn't good enough or they chose to get addicted to something. And that choice then means they're not worthy of help. And that's a different reaction. But it comes at the point where we decide there's a problem. But we don't always decide there's a problem for a long time. Hmm. It's interesting how quickly this conversation went to addiction because mm-hmm. of the nature of medicine and poison and drugs and blah, 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 blah. It's, it is inextricable it is. for us. And, and that is so interesting. I know. I could have this conversation for another hour, but we definitely don't have time for that. And I I spent a lot of time this week thinking about how to how to write an original story for this topic. How do you write an original story for the topic of hemlock? And then I was falling asleep one night and the idea for this story came into my head all at once. I can't wait to hear it. So Without further ado, Rowan, I'm going to jump into the story that I wrote this week. Mallory stood at the gate of the Garden of Death feeling woefully underdressed for her first day of work. She'd chosen a short-sleeved red sundress that fell just below her knees, professional but still true to her quirky sense of style. She'd paired it with simple flat boots and pulled her blonde hair back into a bun, hoping to hide the pink streak she'd impulsively put into it last week. She rounded out the look with a pair of bright mushroom earrings. She thought today would be a sort of trial day, not one for any real gardening work, so she left her gardening supplies in the trunk of her car. However, as Mallory approached the garden, she saw that the goddess of death walked towards her, swathed in sheets of dark, gauzy fabric that floated about her thin frame as she took each tottering step towards the gate. She was hunched over and leaned heavily on a straight black cane topped with the head of a skull. A black, wide-brimmed gardening hat coupled with a thin veil fell past her shoulders and completed her ensemble. She held a black bucket in her hand filled with what appeared to be gardening supplies. Mallory swallowed hard, trying to keep her composure. She could do this. She would do this. She was going to start her job as the gardener for the goddess of death, and she was going to do it with poise and sincerity. Good morning, she said brightly as she pushed open the iron gate to the garden. Her first step onto the dirt path was a clumsy one. She hadn't anticipated the slight change in height difference between the stones and the dirt, and without anything to catch herself on, she went down in the dirt hard. Horrified, she landed with a loud oof on her side as her face was mere inches from a small cluster of leaves growing out of the ground. Don't touch that, the goddess commanded. It's stinging nettle. It will give your skin a nasty rash. Mallory stood clumsily, desperately brushing the dirt off her new dress and trying to regain her composure. Right, yes, of course. Urtica diotica, commonly referred to as stinging nettle, mainly painful due to the formic acid in the needle... I don't need a botany lecture, the goddess replied, cutting her off. I need a gardener. Are you going to be my gardener, or are you going to just trip around all day? Her reproachful stare left Mallory nearly shaking. There was something haunting in her beady, dark eyes hidden behind that black veil she wore. A latent threat that wove itself through every word she did and did not say. But it was the challenge in her voice that set Mallory's spine straight. 
Yes, ma'am. I am going to be your gardener. I know this is a garden full of poisonous and deadly plants, and I am prepared to be their caretaker as others have been before me. The goddess of death stared at Mallory with a shrewd, calculating gaze, pausing for a long while as though deliberating before she responded simply, hmm. Good. The old woman turned on her heel and began walking down the path without glancing back to see if Mallory was following. Mallory scrambled after her, afraid to lose the goddess among the twists and turns of the garden's many winding paths. The garden was vast, stretching out in every direction with plants of all shapes, sizes, colors, and smells. Mallory was fascinated by the diversity of plants able to grow in this one climate. Frankly, it shouldn't have been possible, but she supposed being a goddess made a great many things more possible than they should be. The goddess stopped walking without warning, causing Mallory to trip over herself again in an attempt to not crash into the old woman. Thankfully, this time she stayed on two feet. We'll start here. What is this plant's name? She pointed a bony finger towards a tall plant in front of the two women. Mallory crouched down in front of the plant to get a closer look. Hmm. I can see that the stems have a reddish, uh, purple spot, but they aren't hairy. The leaves are bright green, fern-like, and finely divided, with tooths on the edges. And... She reached out and crushed the leaves, using the hem of her dress as a barrier for her hands. And the leaves have a strong, musty odor when crushed. The flowers are tiny, white, and arranged in small, umbrella-shaped clusters on the ends of branch stems. Satisfied with her inspection, Mallory stood up and faced the goddess of death. This is Conium maculatum, otherwise known as poison hemlock. It's notable for its use in the death of Socrates. To Mallory's shock and mild horror, the old goddess let out a wheezing sound, one that Mallory quickly realized was meant to be laughter or at least the closest approximation to laughter as the stone-faced woman would get. Socrates, oh yes, I remember that day well. A twinkle of joy appeared in her eyes. Everyone thinks that he chose the poison himself, a noble death for a noble man. But no one knows the real truth, except for me. What's the real truth? Mallory asked before she could think better of demanding answers from the goddess of death. Hmm. Let's make a deal, the goddess countered. If you can name five plants in a row correctly, I will tell you the real story of the death of Socrates. Mallory agreed to this deal. She didn't even hesitate, which was dumb and reckless on her part, but she was so dang curious that she didn't care. So she followed the old woman around the garden, carefully inspecting each and every plant that she was told to name, and successfully identifying them one after the other. After the fifth correct answer in a row, Mallory let out a loud whoop of success and turned to face the old woman. I did it! Now it's your turn. Tell me the story. She added a hasty, please, at the end of her statement. There was a twinkle of something light in the goddess's eyes as she regarded Mallory. Taking in her flushed excitement and colorful clothes and hair, she gave a single nod and led the two women to a nearby bench. Socrates was sentenced to death, as you well know, but what you don't know is that he wasn't going to choose the poison first. After the sentence was passed, they gave him some time alone to think through his method of death. It was in that brief period of time that I came to him. I found him alone in that room, and I sat next to him on the small bed, much like I'm sitting next to you now. A chill ran down Mallory's spine. 
I asked him how he wanted to die. He told me that he wanted to put on a show, make them kill him with a sword, or maybe even crucify him. He said he wanted something bloody and provocative. He didn't like when I laughed at him. It was such a male philosopher's answer that I shouldn't even have bothered asking the question. I asked him if he wanted to be a cliché or if he wanted to go down in history as a hero. I told him there was one way he could choose to die that would leave him a legend. Great works would be made in his honor, and he would be remembered for centuries as more than just a man. He took a while to be convinced, but in the end he knew that I was right. He was smart enough to see that, at least. So we ended our conversation and parted ways, and he went to die by the very plant that I handed him in that room. Hemlock, Mallory breathed. The goddess of death gave her a wide, sharp-toothed grin that stretched too far across her face. I made that man a legend, and in doing so elevated my own status. The truth is, I've loved this garden for a millennia, and I will love it for a millennia more. Stars will be born, and stars will die, and these plants will remain by my side. She patted Mallory's knee. Now, let's get back to work, shall we? If you can correctly identify five more plants, I will tell you the real story about how Cleopatra died. Once again, Mallory was powerless to object, and she had a sneaking suspicion the goddess of death knew that as well. Deal, she replied. I'm in love. <laughs> that was delightful. It was so much fun to write. I just had this image in my head of this sunshiny gardener girl in her little sundress and this- Mushroom earring! <laughs> yes! And I this, know this, like, that girl. Right? <sighs> it was just- this, and this like skin and bones creaky like a stereotype of I a goddess of death. I loved your voice for her. Thank you. That one came from my soul. I feel like me and that goddess are one. I wanted specifically not <laughs> for it to be any- one known goddess of death. I wanted mm. it to be this other goddess mm. of death. And and it was, oh, it was so fun to write. I, it just, that one came to me and it was just, I had a blast the whole way through. You know, like those, that, those few times you were writing, <laughs> we were like, oh, I really actually want to go on for like another 45 pages if I could. But yeah, we have a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> no one will know because I was being silent, but I kept beaming at you. It's so delicious. I love this goddess of death who maybe she is the vibe or maybe she's just committed to the vibe of being spooky. I kind of in my head, it's she's like committed and this is, you know, author <laughs> intent versus whatever the audience takes on. If you want to imagine her differently, please go ahead. I imagine her as committed to the vibe of being cool and really she's <laughs> just this like kind of like kind of ooey gooey but also... <laughs> Like, she, she cares and she has, like, you know, a heart inside of her, but it's, like, her morality is just fully different, where she's like, yes, I totally did this thing because I'm the goddess of death and I killed this person and this person, and I'm very proud of the hard work that I did, and I, like, <laughs> has no moral issue with the idea of death, but, like, because people do, they interpret her as, like, just this yeah. crotchety lady who they just don't take the time to get to know. I, I had fun. And then getting 
sidled with this cute girl and be like, you're killing the vibe, but I love it, but you're killing the vibe. And then, and this is, again, uh, Mia's audience, Mm -hmm. um, I imagine that, you know, eventually the goddess of death is like, okay, I I did this for a while, so uh, you inherited. I uh, trained you. And then the goddess of death is this cute little bean. Mm Mm-hmm. That was exactly what I was imagining in my head of, like, she becomes the goddess of death. And then, like, what's that story of her as this cute little being having to be the goddess of death and grapple with what it means to, like, become the shepherd of souls and thinking of it from that perspective. And, like, oh, yes, a little bat pal. And she's a little botany gal who, like, then as the goddess of death has this fascination. Oh, I want to write a whole book about these characters. I fell so in love with them while writing this. <laughs> it reminds me of Death from the Sandman series, how she's not all dark and gloomy. Yes! Mm-hmm. Amazing. I, you. you could have written 45 more pages and I wouldn't have moved an inch. <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe I'll make my own – I was going to say my own fan fiction of my own ACs. Tracy, that's called writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. She's learning. <laughs> Hey, Trace, you're a writer. Oh, okay. From now on, though, you have to speak in the goddess of death. Oh, absolutely. I can do that. <laughs> I might make a D&D character inspired by her, to be honest. I think you've used that voice when we've played D&D before, but not for a full-on character character. I used that voice for a player character that was in a pre-campaign mini-campaign. Mm. And then those characters got turned into npcs in the main campaign so we were playing like really high level characters for about four or five sessions and i played this old woman oracle who was blind but she had tremor sense so she could feel the world around her and in the whole party she just kept being like children children you all need to behave you're just behaving like you're infants and we need to be like just she was just the snapping grandmother at everyone and i was amazing i'm devastated that wasn't a full campaign i loved her her name was anafina i love that Thank you. Thank you for tackling this episode, A, because I know how enthusiastic you are about plants and poisons, uh, but also because it's a weighty topic. It It's funny discussing this on the podcast. You and I talk about morality and death and things like this a lot. Mm-hmm. You and I have a shorthand for how we can speak because we've been talking to each other since kindergarten. Yeah, just for a minute or two. Just a just a moment. And it's different trying to talk about it on a podcast where each word is so valuable. Right. Because no one knows us as well as you and I know each other. Yeah, there's not the history of the background and, and the understanding and the knowledge that I have about you and your family and the experiences you've been having and the experiences that I've been having. And so there just has to be a layer of faith in us having these conversations. And I'm I'm grateful we're at the point with our audience where I think we have built up that level of trust and, and faith and understanding that there is nuance and understanding that we love hearing other perspectives and other experiences so that we can further our own view of the world. The thing about having a research podcast that I'm constantly reminded of is that even when I have an idea that I feel, you know, fairly sure about at least personally like my personal understanding of something or feelings about something we have a research podcast and the thing is you don't know until you know Mm -hmm. and i'm now always available for new information Mm -hmm. like it has fundamentally changed the way i approach being quote-unquote sure about something Mm -hmm. 
the way I am sure now is so flexible yes. compared to the way I was sure before. That was a huge learning experience for me that it's not a reflection on my ego or my intellect or who I am as a person to change what I loudly say to people based on the understanding that I have, I now have more information and therefore my opinion is allowed to change. And I wasn't – I don't have to always say like I was wrong before and being wrong is a negative in your morality and now I'm a bad person. Shedding that feeling in myself is so freeing and enables you to be so much less defensive when exploring topics and information. I hope that the me 50 years from now who is more familiar with death and has experienced it in a myriad of ways can look back on me now and smile. Yeah. Because the way that I feel now is so different than the way that I felt, you know, as a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's interesting creating a time capsule. Very In much real so. real time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now that we've gotten to this point of the podcast, Rowan, would you please tell me something good? Oh, hey, thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... The other night playing Good Society, uh, we were talking about film cameras and Spencer asked me to bring Polaroid cameras because he – I told him that I had some. Mm-hmm. I have a vintage one that takes the kind of funny colored pictures. It's mm-hmm. awesome. And then I have a, a new one. And it was really an interesting and lovely experience the other night taking – Polaroid pictures, all of us, because having something that isn't digital and can't be shared in a million different ways and edited mm-hmm. and is inherently more ephemeral, it makes it so delicious. Yeah. And snapping pictures of my friends and s- having the medium be a part of my understanding of it. Because mm-hmm. there's this neutrality to looking at an image on your phone. It almost feels removed mm-hmm. from the idea of photography uh, to me. Um, and seeing my friends in these Polaroids and realizing that the things that I love about them are right there mm-hmm. is was such a – just a lovely experience. It was very small. It, it was a moment. But yeah. I feel very lucky. That's so sweet. My friends are so interesting. Yeah, they are. I'm obsessed with the friends you have out there. The ones I have and haven't met equally, <laughs> I think, are all amazing because, you know, the way you talk about them is just so exciting. Well, hey, you too. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> You're my friend. The thing that I'm excited about now at this age is my friends are interesting thoughtful people but they're also emotionally interesting i feel like in the last little bit post covid people are engaging with one another more deeply mm-hmm. and i can only speak for myself and the people i interact with but the interactions that i do have with the folks that i love just feel so much more intimate mm. um 
I feel very privileged to get to that feeling of coming out of COVID where everyone's just like, nah, we survived a pandemic. Like, I'm going to wear my best clothes. Also being like, we survived a pandemic. I'm just not going to hold back. Yeah. It it has manifested as so many of my friends just telling each other what they value about each other more often. And yes. being very open with their thoughts and opinions. And it has created such richer relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with that. May it's very main character energy for everyone. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's been it's been really great to see everyone kind of bonding in new ways and and you know, I don't think I would have been as close with Kaylee as I am mm. had it not been for the way the pandemic just enabled virtual connections to feel so much more genuine and authentic. And the other day when I was texting Kaylee, I was like, I'm just so grateful that I get to be as close <laughs> to you and Rowan as I am because you're so far away, but I still feel like part of the family and like she was like, "Oh my god, same." And that just was <laughs> Kaylee, if you're listening to this, like made my whole day um, because we do get to experience friendship differently now. She's good like that. Yeah. It's a very good something good. It's the something yeah. good that keeps on gooding. It's going to make my something good so silly and laughable. I think I know what it's going to be. Okay. So my something good was um, I – as Rowan knows, and I think a few of our listeners know, I have a job right now where I have to work a lot of nights and weekends on top of working during the week. And so there was um, one night where I was trying to look up like, okay, while I'm waiting for things to happen, because there's a lot of periods of waiting, I'm like, what can I do to entertain myself? And so I started looking up different games to play on my Switch. And this was when I actually found after I was working, it was the next morning, I was like, all right, let me give them, like, let me give them a try now that I had fun doing my little research. And it's a game called Boyfriend Dungeon. Which... Who did you woo? I love this game. I didn't know you knew this game. I didn't oh, know I've this game. Oh, I've played it through. Oh, my God. Why I've don't we talk about this? played it more than once. I needed the recommendation. I'm sorry. Give me – okay, when we're done this conversation, I need all the other recommendations. Um, okay, so I had so much fun. I at first was, of course, wooing absolutely every single person, obviously. <laughs> like, uh, hello. Um, and – I'm not going to, like, say any spoilers, but I was wooing um, Sunder for a while. Because, you know, you take a while to get to different characters, but then they're, you know, that kind of ended. And then I ended up for for the long, like, commitment to the end of the game was wooing Seven, the um, Korean K-pop star. Really? Yeah. I love a dark, broody character that's hard to get to love. I love when it's difficult to, to get them to love you. You picked, like, the two characters I was the least interested in. <laughs> um. Okay, interesting. I was least interested in Sawyer, and I think not least in part because they were the last one I met in the game. And at that point, I was like, I can't get my heart invested in Sawyer else. Sawyer is not – I wasn't here for Sawyer The childish either, energy didn't, didn't charm me. No. What about you? I wooed Rowan, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we played different games because or versions of the I game. I played it on Xbox. I played it on the Switch. Oh, okay. So I don't I don't know who's on the Switch then, but on Xbox there's a gender non-binary Rowan who has long white hair and a white raven and is goth as hell and is living in a spooky mansion and is all vibes and of course of course. I wooed Rowan. It could 
now I need to do research, was Rowan like a character I didn't even meet? Like I missed in the dungeons? I thought I met all of the weapons that you could woo. Because okay, in this game, this game is a combination of a dungeon crawler and a dating sim. Rowan's a scythe. Oh my god, I didn't find if because okay, there's Isaac, Sunder, Valeria, Seven, Sawyer, Pocket, Rowan, and Jonah. I missed Rowan. Rowan? I just didn't even see Rowan in the game. How did I miss Rowan? Where do you find Rowan? <laughs> Tracy, for me, and this is going to sound incredibly vain, and it is, uh, I need you to go woo Rowan. And listen, Rowan could have had any vibe, and I still would have chosen them because of the name, obviously. But goth gender non-binary Rowan is too good to pass up, plus the scythe is so fun to fight with. <laughs> In this game, you are wooing people who can turn into weapons, and then you fight with the weapons. It's absolutely unhinged and so fun. My mind is blown. Rowan, I'm starting this game over from scratch, baby. Amazing. We're doing it again. <laughs> Will you tell me about it? Yeah, it's... Listen, when I say it just got me through some really rough days, it got me through some really rough days. Yeah, I'm sure. It's so good. Also, Valeria is not to be ignored. No. Now, the Val least reason being, she's a cool, artistic pain in the ass hottie, but also fighting with the daggers is really fun. Fighting with the daggers is fun. I am someone who loves a good wide arc, so I think I'll actually really enjoy playing with Rowan, but I, that's why I really liked Sunder, because it's just like hack and slash, and I'm not all about that finesse lifestyle. Girl. <laughs> the scythe is everything. I want to personally apologize to you for not even knowing that there was a character. Because I didn't want to research anything because I didn't want to spoil anything. So I didn't look up like all the characters you could romance. Either. And I just assumed I'd meet them all because like it's a pretty linear it's game. It's a big game. <laughs> no. So somehow I goofed up so hard that I missed Rowan, who is objectively like the one I would have picked. Not the least reason being so you could troll me by a text. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh no, ladies and gentlemen, boys, girls, friends, and foes, she will be playing again. <laughs> yes, I will be. So if you're wondering what I'm doing while you're listening to this podcast, I'm probably playing Boyfriend Dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for anyone who doesn't care about video games, but I'm not sorry enough. No. <laughs> And thank you to everyone who has stuck with us this far. We appreciate having you here. And remember, as always, that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology 
that makes the world so fascinating. And thank you all of us. Thank you all of us. And thank you all of us for being me. I would like to thank me for being me. 